In early August, the news spread around the world that Toni Morrison had died. She was 88 years old. In 1988, some of you will remember, she won the Pulitzer Prize for her novel, Beloved, arguably her masterpiece. The next year, she joined the faculty at Princeton University, where she taught for more than 25 years. And in 1993, she became the first African-American woman to win the Nobel Prize in literature. Her obituary in the New York Times described her writing as luminous, incantatory prose resembling that of no other writer in English. And she was one of those rare American authors whose books were both uh, critical and commercial successes. I was previously most familiar with her fiction, but her death prompted me to read a recent uh, collection of her nonfiction essays, speeches, and meditations titled The Source of Self-Regard. For now, I'll limit myself to a tribute she wrote about the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Morrison begins with the time that Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's oldest child, asked her, you know, interesting, that, that's an interesting conversation, right? Toni Morrison and uh, Martin Luther King III, he asked her, if you were having a conversation with my father, what would you ask him? And for whatever confluence of reasons, she didn't exactly answer the question. She just found herself saying in response, oh, I hope he's not disappointed in me. And I thought, reading that, if Toni Morrison's worried, I should be worried. <laughs> right? <laughs> With all that she accomplished. I think what was underneath that is wondering, is writing fiction enough? And I think we could reassure Morrison, yes, it was enough. You, you changed our imaginations, right? Uh, Morrison never met Dr. King in person when he was assassinated in 1968. Uh, she was 37 years old and a year into her tenure as the first black woman senior editor in the fiction department at Random House in New York City. Yet she writes, I felt this personal responsibility to him. When I found myself say saying, oh, I hope he's not disappointed in me, I was responding to his mission. His audacious faith, his expectation, here you get a taste of that incantatory luminous prose, she says, his expectation of transforming a pending cosmic elegy into a psalm of brotherhood. His confidence that we were finer than we thought, that there were moral grounds we would not abandon, lines of civil behavior we would not cross, that there were things we would gladly give up for public for the public good, that a comfortable life resting on the shoulders of other people's misery is an abomination that this country, among all nations, should find offensive. Morrison eventually concluded that even if she could know the answer to whether King was disappointed in her, that it was actually less important than just periodically revisiting the question itself. How are we each individually, how are we collectively living up to or falling short of Dr. King's dream of what he knew was possible for us? This question reminds me of Dr. King's fourth and final book that he published in 1967 in the year prior to his assassination titled, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community? 
I do think that King would be disappointed in leaders both in this country and around the world who seem much more committed to sowing chaos than to creating community, building bridges across differences. As for we Unitarian Universalists, I think we're clear that we want to make the other choice, that we want to choose community, but we're not always sure how to get there. To use Dr. King as a guide, he was clear that what most consistently prevents us from building the beloved community is what he called the triple threats of racism, materialism, and militarism. So racism, you know, falsely dividing ourselves based on melanin content. Uh, materialism, caring more about material things than what really matters, each other, how we treat each other. And militarism, um, overfunding the military at the expense of um, domestic social programs. All three are important. I've addressed each of them before and will do so again, but for now I'd like to invite us to focus on racism, the first of the three, for how it continues to hold us back from building the world we dream about. Dr. King's life and writings remain a vital touchstone, but he was also taken from us more than 50 years ago. And for today, one of the best contemporary resources I've found recently is the writings of Ibram Kendi. In 2017, Dr. Kendi became the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University in Washington, D.C. A year earlier in 2016, at the age of 34, he became the youngest ever winner of the National Book Award for Stamped from the Beginning, the Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. He jokes that growing up he dreamed of playing in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, but it turns out his life has given him a different NBA, the National Book Award. So it's not too bad. Uh, and although that book is excellent, I'd recommend beginning, if you're interested in his thought, and I hope that you are, beginning with his shorter and much more accessible book that really weaves in memoir with his reflections titled How to Be an Anti-Racist. So how do we go from here? How do we become more anti-racist, more in alignment with a path away from chaos and division and toward building bridges across differences, toward beloved community? For Dr. Kendi, one central touchstone is science. The Human Genome Project confirmed almost three decades ago in 1990 that in genetic terms, all of us human beings, regardless of race, we are 99.9% .9 the same. And sure, if you Google it, are there some racists out there that focus on that 0.1%? Ignore them, they're racists. Uh, there is only one race, the human race. Indeed, scientists tell us that our human species, in the grand scheme of things, we're just so evolutionarily young, our migratory patterns so wide and restless that we just haven't had the chance to divide ourselves into biological groups or so-called races in any but the most superficial ways. It's just skin color. We've all evolved in the last 100,000 years from the same small number of tribes that migrated out of Africa. Race is not a biological fact, it is a social construction of fairly recent origin. However, both race and racism, they are such powerful and influential social constructions that they will require equally powerful effort and intention to deconstruct. It's not just going to happen on its own. On its own, systems of oppression just tend to perpetuate themselves.
The fact that we humans are all 99.9% the same genetically clarifies that it is illegitimate, indeed it is racist, whenever anyone makes a claim that there is inherent biological problems with people of color as a group. Therefore, in Dr. Kendi's assessment, we should admit that racial inequity is a problem not of bad people, but of bad policy. And our approach should be just to keep adjusting our policies until the results happen of a much more equitable, beloved community. In Kendi's liberating words, just as is the case among lighter-skinned folks, black, it turns out, is beautiful and ugly, intelligent and unintelligent, law-abiding and law-breaking, industrious and lazy, and you find all that among white folk as well. And he says it is all these imperfections that make black people human, that make black people equal to all other imperfectly human groups. You'd think you shouldn't have to say this, but apparently we need to say it. He continues in the concluding paragraph of his epic award-winning book, Stamped from the Beginning, that there will come a time when Americans will realize that the only thing wrong with black people is that too many Americans think there's something wrong with black people. There will come a time when racist ideas will no longer obstruct us from seeing the complete and utter abnormally, ab abnormality of racial disparities. There will come a time when we will love humanity, all of humanity, when we will gain the courage to fight for an equitable society, for our beloved humanity, knowing intelligently that when we fight for humanity, we're fighting for ourselves, for all of us getting free. There will come a time, maybe, just maybe, he says, that time is now. I love that. There's so much power in focusing on the goal of a more equitable society. So saying we're just going to keep changing policy until we get those results. Notice as well his point that too often racist ideas, they obstruct us from seeing the complete and utter abnormality of racial disparities. You shouldn't have these huge racial disparities because we're all human beings. We're just not all that different as a group. The reason we get these differences is racist policies. We know that we humans are 99.9% .9 the same, but because of racism's continued growth and evolution, we have these devastating inequities. We know that the median wealth of white households is a staggering 13 times the median wealth of black households. Black people are five times more likely to be incarcerated than white people. Black infants die at twice the rates of white infants, and African Americans are 25% more likely to die of cancer than whites. It's not because there's any genetic difference, it's because society is structured differently. And these inequities must be dismantled if we're going to have a future with hope as a society. As Justice Harry Blackman famously wrote, in order to get beyond racism, we must first take account of race. What Kendi does so brilliantly in his book, Stamped from the Beginning, is trace what he calls the dual and dueling people in movements in U.S. history. He traces racism all the way from the beginning of this country all the way to today, how it's grown and evolved. And he traces anti-racism all the way from the beginning, how it's continued to grow and evolve. Racism meaning all those people in movements who have helped increase and further entrench racial equality. And anti-racism, 
all those people who have sought to try to decrease or eliminate racial inequity. Now, in school, I learned some, not nearly enough, about the history of racism, how our hallowed constitution came to count enslaved human beings as, quote, three-fifths of a person uh, in the 18th century, how in the 19th century, the huge number of people in this country willing to go to war and die to defend slavery, how the practice of Jim Crow laws and lynchings happened in the 20th century. And I learned some, though not nearly enough, about the history of what Kendi calls anti-racism, especially the abolition of slavery in the 19th century, the civil rights movement in the 20th. But the way I learned the story in South Carolina growing up, I bet it wasn't that different in Maryland. Um, for those of you who grew up in other places, the story kind of ended with the civil rights movement. And I was told that anti-racism, it really wasn't needed anymore. We took care of that. The result in Kendi's words is that we've continued to use 1960s glasses and this kept us from seeing 21st century racism. It turns out that many of us who are white need to get our glasses checked. In contrast, what Kendi's book does so well is to trace, again, both racism and anti-racism as consistent through lines that have each continued to grow, to adapt, to evolve, starting before the beginning of this country, continuing to today. So yes, celebrate that those old Jim Crow laws have been outlawed, but we need to recognize that Jim Crow's children and Jim Crow's grandchildren are alive and well in racially biased mass incarceration, new racially biased voter ID laws, and so much more. Because racism has continued to grow and evolve, anti-racism too must continue to grow and evolve. And here we reach another of Dr. Kendi's crucial points that can help us get beyond what's been holding us back. He says that the opposite of racist isn't not racist. It's anti-racist. So many of us have been content by saying, sorry, there's a bug on my neck. Uh, so many of us have been content saying, I'm not a racist. And you know, rejecting racism and thought, done, right? He's like, no, the opposite of racism is anti-racism. I've lost count of the number of times I've heard politicians and other public figures defensively insist, I'm not racist, and then just walk away. Kendi shows that claiming to be not racist is a distraction, and he challenges us to stop being distracted by it. Trying to carve out this position of not racist, it is a false neutrality that usually results in the perpetuation of the racist status quo. So just saying, I'm not racist, still leaves you really on the side of racism because it, racism is just going to keep continuing unless we actively dismantle it. As the activist historian Howard Zinn used to say, you can't stay neutral on a moving train. And racism is a train that's continued to move, continue to grow, continue to evolve. The much more important question is, how are you being anti-racist? What are you proactively doing to dismantle systemic racism and put into place policies that will measurably increase equality? I shared with you in a sermon about a year ago about the racial wealth gap that you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates famously said that, you know, what, he was asked, what would prove to you that racism was you know, eliminated in this country. He said, just close the racial wealth gap and we'll be good, right? That, that's something very evidence-based and data-driven, but we've got that 13 times wealth gap that we need to start closing. Uh, here's how Dr. Kendi puts it. We know how to be racist. 
we know how to pretend to be not racist. Let's know how to be anti-racist. I particularly appreciate the way this perspective, it just, it cuts through the fog that so often develops around these arguments of, is that person racist or not? So much time and energy and ink has been spilt trying to discern, is that person racist? Are they in their heart? Uh, sometimes there's a smoking gun proving racist intent. More often, as any lawyer will tell you, trying to prove intent is often impossible or at least extremely difficult. Thus, Dr. Kendi wisely advises us to set aside that question of trying to discern if someone's racist in their heart and just ask, is the impact of their words and actions either racist or not doing anything about the racism that exists? As the saying goes, even if you didn't intend to step on my foot, if you step on my foot, my foot still hurts, even if you didn't mean to. It's worse if you maliciously intended to stomp on my foot, but even if you didn't intend to, my foot still hurts. Even if you didn't intend to be racist or even if you didn't intend to do anything about it, that racism, that, that, pain, that deep pain is still there regardless of intent. So regardless of intent, does a given action increase or perpetuate racial hierarchy? If so, it's racist. Likewise, regardless of intent, did a given actions or words, did it create more racial equity? If so, it's anti-racist, even if you didn't intend it to be. What's especially useful about this framework is that it can diffuse that charge again over fighting around, is someone racist? As if any of us had some unchanging racist or anti-racist um, essence inside of us. That's why you often get people saying, how can I be racist? My, one of my best friends is black, right? That's actually anti-racist, having a friend. But that policy you just implemented, that's racist. Both these things can be true. Do you see how he's trying to liberate us to see like, what's really going on instead of getting distracted? It turns out that we human beings are much messier than just simply always racist or always anti-racist. Sometimes we're racist, contributing to racial inequity. Sometimes we're anti-racist, contributing um, to dismantling inequity. Indeed, Kendi has found in multiple cases the same person saying racist and anti-racist things in the very same speech, including President Obama. Read his book. It's interesting. In his words, we change and we're deeply complex and our definitions of racist and anti-racist must reflect that. And what really matters is what have you done recently to proactively dismantle racism? So with some of these new and improved insights, will we be able to let go of the racist systems that are holding us back from reaching beloved community and commit to a proactive anti-racism? To say more about that, let me share one piece of Dr. Kendi's powerful life stories. He shares multiple vignettes in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. I'll share just one. In January 2018, he was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. The good news is that after both surgery and chemotherapy, he is currently cancer-free. But the result could have been otherwise. About 88% of people diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer die within five years. Reflecting on his harrowing experience of surviving cancer against all odds, he began to develop a metaphor for the current state of our body politic. In his words, my society has racism, the most serious stage. Racism is likely to kill my society. My society can survive racism against all odds. As with cancer, though, if we remain in denial, the racism will just keep spreading. 
But if we're willing to be honest about our situation and undergo some of the pain that will be required to heal, there are no guarantees, but there is the possibility, the real possibility of a future with hope. In Kendi's words, again, we need to saturate the body politic with the chemotherapy, the immunotherapy of anti-racist policies that take race measurably into account. We need to shrink the tumors of racial inequities that kill undetectable cancer cells, remove any remaining racist policies the way that surgeons remove tumors, ensure there are clear margins, meaning no cancer cells of inequity left, in our body politics, only the healthy cells of equity. Detect and treat a recurrence early before it can grow. Racism, he says, it's not even 600 years old. We've caught it early in the grand scheme of things. Once we lose hope, we are guaranteed to lose. But if we ignore the odds and fight to create an anti-racist world, then we give humanity all part of humanity. We give humanity a chance to one day survive, a chance to live in communion, a chance to really be free.